Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. Our speaker this evening is a Catholic priest of the personal ordinariate of the Chair of St. Peter. Father Eric Bergman serves as pastor of St. Thomas More Catholic Church in Scranton, Pennsylvania, a parish of converts to Catholicism who celebrate the Anglican use of the Roman Rite Mass. A former clergyman of the Episcopal Church and a convert to Catholicism, Father Bergman was ordained to the Catholic priesthood in 2007 under Pope John Paul II's pastoral provision, and in 2012, he became the first priest incarnated in the personal ordinary of the chair of St. Peter. He serves as chaplain of the Anglican Orum Chedibus Society, a Catholic organization dedicated to increasing awareness of Pope Benedict XVI's 2009 Apostolic Constitution of that same name. Father Bergman and his wife, Christina, reside in Scranton and have 10 children. Please join me in welcoming back to the Institute, Father Eric Bergman. Thank you. We'll begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. O God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, sanctify and bless your married servants and handmaids. Grant that those whom thou by matrimony just make one, may steadfastly keep the covenant betwixt them made, and never remain in perfect love and peace together. To the same Jesus Christ, thy Son, our Lord, who liveth in the name of thee, in the age of the Holy Spirit, ever one God, world without end. That collect I just prayed was from our own uh, book, our own missal that I used to celebrate Mass, and uh, there are about 45 of our communities across the country, so uh, we're certainly not alone in offering that particular use. So today I uh, thought that uh, we'd begin by talking exactly what is marriage, and uh, to let you know we have done a play on words with regard to the end of marriage, meaning uh, the end, obviously, it looks like uh, we're facing the end of marriage in our society as a whole, but also then we're talking uh, later, as the series goes on, in terms of what the ends of marriage are. And so today, I'm going to give you the bad news and talk about how we got here to the point where we believe we are seeing the end of marriage uh, in the West. So what is marriage? Any discussion, obviously, has to begin with that question. And it is, obviously, in order to have a valid sacrament, we have to have valid matter, valid form, and valid intent. And so in the Catholic Church, uh, marriage, of course, is one man and one woman. And in order for it to be considered uh, valid, the priest, or in the Latin church, a deacon, has to witness it with proper delegation. So people who get married outside the church who were baptized Catholic, if they get married, say, in Vegas or something, they are not in a valid marriage because they have not had a proper witness. And then, of course, in order to have a valid uh, marriage, we have to have the correct intent. This is the reason that the church has to witness it. We have to make sure that the parties are free to be married, uh, that they intend to be faithful to one another, that they will be fruitful insofar as uh, the Lord permits. And obviously it has to, the intent has to be that their marriage will perdure. So that is that it will endure until death does them part. So to approach the question of the end of marriage, we have to say, why has the church traditionally said that there can be no divorce amongst those who have been married according to the criteria that I just described. Why can there be no divorce? And of course we have, if you have your scripture, uh, if you have your Bibles with you, you should open to chapter um, 19 of Matthew's gospel. And herein we see this uh, beautiful passage about the Pharisees who came up to Jesus and who asked him, if we look at chapter 19, uh, verse three, Pharisees came up to Jesus 
and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read who made them from the beginning, made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one. So they are no longer two, but one. Well, therefore God has joined together. Let not man put asunder. So obviously the uh, scriptural basis for uh, the indissolubility of marriage is found in Matthew 19, as well as other places like uh, Mark chapter 10. And of course, St. Paul talks about it in uh, 1 Corinthians. He even says, not I, but the Lord. When he talks about the indissolubility of marriage, it's not I, but the Lord said this. So uh, what we see that in the, in the uh, uh, up to the 19th century, uh, in many places across the globe, particularly those places that had been evangelized with the gospel of Jesus Christ, positive law of the state was in accord with the moral and the natural law that had been decreed by God. Now, obviously, during the Protestant Revolution, there were a number of people who advocated for divorce, and Henry VIII, of course, began the Church of England uh, through his own uh, divorce. And, and even Melanchthon and Luther at one point even advocated bigamy. But for the most part, what had happened in Christian states is the law with regard to uh, marriage that had obtained in the Middle Ages uh, remained. In fact, when we get to 1857, when the English introduced their first divorce law, that is the means by which people might approach uh, the state to get a divorce, there had only been 324 divorces since the time of Henry VIII. So from the time of Henry VIII with his first divorce to 1857 in England, there had been a total of 324 divorces. Astounding. So it was very uncommon in the Western world to see couples divorce. The positive law of the state was in accord with the moral and the natural law that had been decreed by God. So what happened in 19th century Europe to change this that would then occasion the encyclical Arcanum Divine, which I've given you a quote from, and which we'll talk about later, uh, the encyclical of Pope Leo XIII. He, his, this encyclical was occasioned by so many changes that are happening in 19th century Europe. And, and so we'll begin first, obviously, with the enthronement of reason. When, when the French Revolution took place at the end of the 18th century, one of the things that the revolutionaries did was got a prostitute off the streets and put her on a throne in Notre Dame Cathedral. And they called this the enthronement of reason. It was an explicit rejection of the Christian gospel and a deification of man's own power to use his reasoning faculties, that is to uh, use logic and uh, linear thinking. And so uh, what we see in the Throughout then the 19th century, uh, in the wake of the uh, French Revolution, we see without reference to God, the belief amongst so many people in the West that we can discern truth and craft laws that are more compassionate than the ones that we inherited, that we received from the church, that is the laws of God. So there is in the 19th century, a growing belief that we can make laws that are better than the ones that God gave us and which we all inherited as uh, really receivers of this beautiful culture that the church built uh, from the time of the fall of the Roman Empire. So the second thing we see happen in the 19th century is the Marxist critique of marriage. And this is Karl Marx. He wrote the Communist Manifesto, published it in 1848. When I mean, you think about this, this is uh, much, so much longer before the Bolshevik Revolution. It doesn't happen until 1917. The Communist Manifesto was written in 1848. And in it, in it, Marx maintains that the nuclear family is the defender of economic privilege and therefore an impediment to economic equality. And because he sees everything in material terms, and for Marx, everything is about class warfare. His conclusion is that the nuclear family, obviously including uh, matrimony, holy matrimony, this must be destroyed if there is to be the utopia 
that he has promised through his writing. So this is the second error that sort of runs through the 19th century. The third error is what I call Darwinian racialism, and it's really uh, just eugenics, the idea that we can uh, have a better race by getting the good people to breed. It's very, and I don't, don't think that I think in this way, and we don't talk about reproduction, human beings reproducing, it's not, we procreate, but this, I'm talking about Darwin now, so I'm using his vocabulary. So he talks about breeding the right type of people and not permitting the wrong type of people to breed. And its uh, implication for morality is that some people, according to Darwin and the eugenicists, uh, because they aren't good people, they have bad genes, according to the Darwinians, they are simply incapable of good. The implication being that the laws must be crafted to address this supposed inferiority. So if you can't do something, if the law is such that it is impossible for people to follow, that they can't obey that law, well, then we have to change the law to dumb it down, to bring it down to their level. So the eugenic understanding of humanity, which was completely racist and in no way Catholic, uh, it is really the racist version of Jansenism or Calvinism, which is to say it's a predestinary fatalism, the belief that people can't be improved. And it's a totally uh, lack of faith in the grace of God. So you remove uh, the grace that might give us the power to do that which is good, that which is right and holy, then we have to have something else that makes us, and what the Darwinians fell on, and of course, in the 20th century, we'll see Margaret Sanger and then Adolf Hitler sees on the same thing, is that what makes us capable to do the good is the fact that we are racially superior. But this, this origin is in Darwin, its origin is in the 19th century. The fourth thing that we see is happening in the 19th century is sexual libertinism. And this is manifested, obviously, it came out of the French Revolution, an explicit rejection of Christian morality with regard to the sacredness of sexual relations. The first thing we see uh, early on, really, in, in the uh, 19th century is the polygamy of Joseph Smith and Brigham Young. And this, the people, the Mormons, are actually mentioned in Leo XIII's encyclical, Arconum Divine. So, so we see he actually mentions uh, the Mormons. And this idea that a man can have uh, uh, more than one wife is totally uh, contrary to uh, what Jesus, what we just read, what Jesus said in, in Matthew 19, but also contrary to the natural law uh, and, and, and contrary to the law of the church. What we see is when he wrote the encyclical in 1880 and condemns the uh, Mormons for their polygamy, they hadn't yet received uh, their supposed revelation uh, in 1890 that said that they could put polygamy away. And then, of course, Utah statehood was dependent upon them getting rid of polygamy because the federal government would not allow Utah to become a state unless the Mormons gave up polygamy. So they got a revelation from God, and suddenly polygamy was bad. And so in 1896, uh, Utah became a state. But when this encyclical was written, uh, the, the, the Mormons certainly uh, uh, certainly uh, still practiced polygamy and were advocates of it. The second thing we see happen in, uh, in uh, the, the 19th century is the widespread use of uh, contraception. Uh, we, we imagine, we think of, we think of uh, the, the 20th century, and I gave you portions of Ioanni Vitae to read from 1968. We think of the 20th century as being the time when contraception was embraced. But it's actually not at all that. It was actually the 19th century, where uh, lambskin and 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 other, uh, and eventually in the 19th century, rubber condoms uh, were embraced, and and this became the most common form of contraception. We see uh, in uh, the Civil War, uh, we see that there is a uh, massive use of camp followers and uh, and and, and the, as they go marching home uh, from war, uh, the men who had used contraception during the Civil War in our own country uh, asked for it. And, and, uh, and what we end up uh, with is eventually the Comstock laws. 
and I'll get that in a second. But what we, but the one sign of the degree to which contraception was being used so uh, in such a widespread manner is that the fertility rate in uh, America in 1800 was seven women, uh, sorry, seven children per woman per lifetime. So, so, so for every woman in America, on average, the fertility rate means that she had seven children. Now, by 1900, that fertility rate had dropped in half. It had gone down to 3.5. It would maintain. It would be maintained. It would be in 3.5 until 1964. Now there was a little dip there during the depression, but basically we see the fertility rate uh, plummet in not in uh, we 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 sort of associated with the 20th century, and it did. It did plummet in the 20th century. But the first drastic drop in the fertility rate happens in the 19th century, and this is because of the widespread use of contraception. And also, of course, we see uh, if you want to if you want uh, contraception, you're also going to want its backup plan, which is to say uh, abortion. And and this is where Anthony Comstock comes in. Uh, in the 1870s, he saw they, they they saw the complete dissolution of society happening because you had all these soldiers who had uh, been whoring around during the war. They came back home. They felt they could keep doing the same thing, and and they were corrupting all kinds of uh, women. And so what happened was a reaction in Protestant legislatures across the nation. Every every state passed laws banning the uh, abortion, of course, outlawing abortion. And Comstock, his, his role was to make it illegal to send contraceptives in the mail or to advertise them. So, so the, the uh, real problem, there was a real problem with both contraception and abortion at, in the wake of the Civil War, which of course we, we drew back from and, 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 and did not embrace at, at that time. But it demonstrates the mentality of the 19th century man, that the idea that he might use his wife as an instrument of mere pleasure was already well, well ensconced in Western man in the, in the 19th century. So if we talk about then uh, the fifth thing that was going through, uh, the fifth idea that was going through uh, the West in the 19th century is women's liberation. And uh, Pope uh, Pius XI in uh, the encyclical Casi Canubi, he talks about this, and we'll talk about that today a little, in a little bit. Uh, he talks about how uh, the women desired economic, sociological, and physiological independence. And he says that this is a denial of the complementarity of the sexes. And it posits that to escape male subjugation, which of course would always be wrong, a man is never to subjugate his wife. This is, this is, this is uh, uh, a terrible uh, perversion of what the church says and what the, what the man is supposed to do as a servant. He's supposed to wash his wife's feet, not subjugate her. But, uh, but what, what women's liberation posited is that to escape male subjugation, a woman must be free from the female role. So it is a moving away from uh, womanhood, what it means to be female, the gifts uh, that God has given uh, to women. It's a moving away from them. And it's really uh, moving women, mimicking males, rather than embracing the fullness of what it means to be made in the image of God as a female. They reject that. They reject the nature that they have been given and begin to embrace the male role, which is of course ridiculous because uh, a woman is a woman, so it, d it doesn't make any sense. But this is the this is a trend that we see occurring throughout uh, the 19th century, and it'll reach its fulfillment, of course, uh, with Betty Friedan in 1964. Uh, but but it doesn't it doesn't the origins of it are in the 19th century. Now, if we move on, we see also uh, an idea. Uh, the the sixth error is that. Uh, the church should be subject to or divorced from the state. Now, we'll see this really come to play in the 1905 uh, secularity law in France, where the church, uh, where the society is completely secularized, and France to this day is governed by that law. Uh, but France does it in a, in a very explicit way. We did it too, though, because if you look at our Constitution, uh, we don't have any acknowledgement of God in the Constitution. 
We, we do, blessedly, in our Declaration of Independence, but there is no, not one, in the entire Constitution, not one acknowledgement that God exists. And so, therefore, there is this idea among uh, nations that come to be, uh, and, and sort of following our example, that there can be a divorce between the church and the state, which was a new idea. This was not common. Uh, the church and the state prior to this were collaborators. But in the 19th century, we see that people begin to embrace the lie that doctrine of the church is irrelevant to government. We can figure it out, like I said before about reason, we can figure it out on ourselves, and then we can make laws that suit us uh, without reference at all to God, remember. So, so uh, this is, this is uh, almost accepted uh, almost universally now, uh, but but its origin, the origin of this lie, uh, that the church and the state aren't partners but rivals, and they should be either uh, the, the either the state should be over the church or they should be completely separate. This is really a lie that got traction in the 19th century. So uh, to move to move on, the next lie. And the, the last one, this, the last one I'm going to cover, there's many more lies in the 19th century. And of course, if you want to read about all of them, uh, you can read Pius IX's uh, syllabus of theirs. And, and so I would, uh, I would recommend that. But uh, I don't have enough time to cover all that. But right now, uh, the seventh error is the idea in the 19th century that the crisis that the Western world was facing was both economic and nationalistic. This was the lie. And, and, and uh, Marx wrote on that. And then if we think about the scramble for Africa, for example, the uh, conference in Berlin in the 1880s when they when they cut up Africa and all of the uh, different uh, empires were trying to uh, prove who was the most uh, powerful and which uh, race of peoples was it the English or the Germans or the French who were the superior ones it, it, the whole thing's absurd uh, so the real problem wasn't the economic crisis or uh, the nationalistic crisis the real problem the real the, the problem is really religious and moral we see. Uh, that the rejection of the faith is what causes the beginning of this descent into chaos, of which we are now the bearers. I mean, they didn't have the chaos back then, but but the the we we now bear the chaos because in the 19th century we see the rejection of the Catholic religion, and we see the rejection of Catholic morals, and as a result we have all kinds of big problems. And rather than saying, oh, we need to re-embrace this precious gift that God gave us, the Catholic faith, we need to go back to Catholic morals where they say, no, the problem is, is economic. And if we fix that, everything will be fine. The problem is that we are oppressed by these other nations. And if we just free ourselves from their oppression, then everything will be fine. Well, the whole oppression was happening because there was a moral problem. Uh, there was the, the pressure was happening because they had abandoned the faith that would not allow people to repress each other. So, so let's say it is a, uh, uh, a misreading of the signs of the times. And, and the lie that gets, uh, that gets bought is that, oh, everything will be solved. We just get the economic problem fixed out and the national problems, the nation problems fixed out. Then we'll be fine. Now, we can't ignore the role in the 19th century played by the exploitation of the capitalists and uh, the suffering that uh, so many workers suffered because of the Industrial Revolution. I don't want to dismiss that at all. And the Holy Father, Pope Leo XIII, addresses this in Novarum. It isn't my uh, focus here, but we can't deny that a large uh, part of the reason that so many of these lies were able to be spread uh, and embraced, the reason some of these lies got traction is because of the horrific, horrific abuse of the human person that was undertaken by the capitalists and uh, suffered by uh, innumerable workers. So I don't, I don't want to act like uh, there was no problem there, uh, but ultimately the issue was a moral one. Why are you turning, you, we've just freed people from slavery. Why have we then turned them into wage slaves? It makes no sense at all. There's no, there's no, there's no rationality. You know, reason. We're going to elevate reason. We're going to do everything by reason. Well, they weren't very reasonable uh, to liberate people from slavery and then just turn them into new slave, new kinds of slaves. That was not a solution. The problem was not economic. It was a moral problem. It had a manif It was manifested economically, 
The problem is a moral problem. So the parallels between the 19th century and now are obvious. What underlies all of these, though, from the selfishness standpoint, is uh, going back to this point I made about uh, the ubiquity in the 19th century of contraception, uh, the lie that turns marriage on its head. Contraception says that rather than sacrifice myself completely for you, my beloved, rather than pour 100% of myself out for you, for the good of society and to the glory of God, I am going to withhold from you my fertility. So when I withhold my fertility from you, then my concentration is no longer on self-oblation. My, con my, my concentration is upon self-preservation, the keeping what I have, withholding from you what I could give you, but keeping what I have, because I conceive of children as a potential threat to what I want to possess. So we say, I love you, and I will give you uh, my genitals, but I will not give you my fertility. This horrific lie. And, and, it's, and it became part of the way of thinking in Western man uh, between the years 1800 and 1900. We can, we, we, remember, we associate this with having happened in the 20th century. It happened in the 19th century. So we can see this in a few ways. Uh, not only do we see the fertility drop from 7 to 3.5, in England, if we look at the family size uh, in English uh, clergy families, so, so in England, of course, uh, it's, it's a Protestant nation. In the Church of England, Anglican ministers can get married uh, and have families. And in uh, 1870, the average Anglican cleric had five children. Uh, by the time of the Lambeth Conference in 1930, the average Anglican clergyman had two. So they were, uh, they hadn't changed the teaching on contraception. There had been no change in the teaching. In fact, in 1920, the teaching on contraception had been upheld at Lambeth 1920. But in the Anglican Communion, we see the fertility rate drop amongst clergy families by more than half. So that they... The selfishness that I just described in 19th century man is reflected even in the people who are leaders of the religious institutions in nations such as England. So now in the 20th century, things get even worse. Even prior to World War I, uh, in surveys done both in 1900 and uh, uh, 10 years before, 45% of women in New York confessed to using condoms for contraception. So now, of course, that, that rate would pretty much remain constant uh, until 1960 uh, with the invention of the pill. Uh, we'll get to that in a second, but 45% but, uh, already in 1900, already in 1900, 45% of women in New York said, yes, we use condoms. The moral degradation that happened after World War I gave us the Roaring Twenties, which is a scandal. Uh, and by 1930, we see Lambeth Conference plus contraception. Only the Catholic Church, of all the institutions in the world, only the Catholic Church would maintain the church's teaching, the constant teaching that Calvin and Luther and Henry VIII all embraced, that contraception was a grave moral evil. So even the original Protestants said contraception was wrong, but in 1930, after the Anglicans do it, uh, uh, the floodgates are open in every single denomination in the world, besides the Catholic Church, in some manner or another, uh, either explicitly or implicitly adopts the idea that contraceptive sexual relations within marriage can be blessed. So in America, uh, we see uh, in 1960, the FDA approves the uh, contraceptive pill. And by 1964, the baby boom is over and our fertility rate drops from about 3.5 uh, down to 2 uh, not overnight, but pretty close. And uh, the legal, so in order to have contraception legalized, uh, they have a Supreme Court decision, Griswold versus Connecticut, 1965. All the anti contraceptive laws uh, that had been passed in the 1870s uh, under the leadership of Anthony Comstock, they're all overturned. Uh, porn is legalized between uh, 
through Supreme Court decisions between 1957 and 1973, if we go from the Roth decision to the Miller decision, between 1957 and 1973, basically every form of porn is legalized except for uh, child porn, but there's, that's, of course, ubiquitous as well. Uh, in 1972, the Supreme Court uh, uh, legalized contraceptive for single women. In 1965, it had only been legalizing contraceptives for married women. 1972, contraceptives are legalized for single women. 1973, of course, we see abortion legalized throughout all nine months of pregnancy. And, and uh, it isn't for any reason, but basically because uh, the Dovey Bolton decision says that a woman can get an abortion for her health, all she has to say is, I'm going to kill myself, and then she can kill her child, all the way up to uh, the night, to the moment the baby's born. Uh, in 1986, the sodomy laws, uh, the laws against sodomy are upheld uh, in the Bowers decision, uh, but uh, it's an inconsistent uh, decision, which would, of course, we'd see that disappear as well in our, own, in our lifetime, because if we bless relations that are intentionally infecund, it will not be long before we bless relations that are inherently infecund. If we bless relations that are intentionally infecund, we will eventually bless relations that are inherently infecund. And of course, uh, this happens uh, at the turn of the 21st century. Uh, as as uh, to the year 2000 dawns, uh, we see same-sex marriage come to the Netherlands in 2001. And in Lawrence uh, v. Texas, in uh, the decision uh, Lawrence v. Texas, sodomy is legalized in the United States. So in, in, um, in every single, in every single uh, 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 state that had, that where sodomy was still illegal, in every state where sodomy was still illegal, in 2003, the, uh, the decision, uh, Lawrence v. Uh, Texas, uh, overturns everything. So uh, just go uh, uh, 12 years later, Obergefell versus Hodges, we see same-sex marriage legalized. I mean, so it's a lie. There's no such thing as same-sex marriage because we just said that marriage is a man and a woman. But uh, the the uh, people of the same sex being able to obtain a marriage license this occurs in uh, 2015 in every state in the union. And now, of course, we are uh, uh, in the transgender fight, and I'll touch more on that uh, when I get to uh, Humana Vitae. So if you have your uh, things that I handed out, the handout that I we look first at, Arcanum Divine, uh, which is this beautiful encyclical that was written in February of 1880. And uh, Leo XIII predicts uh, the rather rotten fruit of divorce. So if we look first at that uh, uh, passage, we can then go through it and see how true. Remember, all these, I gave you these passages from these three encyclicals, Arcanum Divine, Casicanubi, and Hominavite, so you could see that the wisdom of the church is such that although these things that they say would happen hadn't happened, they all saw them happen. In every case, the Holy Father saw what would happen if these changes to the positive law occurred throughout the West. He said all these things will happen. And in every case, as we will see in reading these encyclicals and reading these passages, we'll see that everything he said happened did happen. So here we are with uh, Leo Thirteenth. It says, it is hardly possible to describe how great are the evils that flow from divorce. Matrimonial contracts are by it made variable. Obviously, uh, with the onset of no-fault no divorce, beginning in California in 1969, that's an obvious truth. Uh, <laughs> we're, we're talking about, really, my, my, grand, my great-grandmother, I met her um, in 1976. Uh, she was 100 years old at that time. She died when she was 106. She was alive when Custer was killed at Little Bighorn. So. So we're talking here uh, in our con, uh, uh, we're talking about 1880, here we are before 1970. So, you know, that's 16, 17 years shorter than my great-grandmother lived and I met her. So this is not a very long amount of time. This is not a long amount of time to put that in perspective. So he's saying, here's what's gonna happen. And we see it happen in uh, uh, 89 years later. Mutual kindness has weakened. Who can doubt that we are less kind to one another? now than even when I was a kid, when I was out in California in 1976. Deplorable inducements to unfaithfulness are supplied. Of course, uh, if uh, in America, when we, when uh, in order to get a divorce uh, prior to 1969, one had to have cause. And the most often, the cause most states permitted was adultery. So there was a, a sort of industry of people who would be uh, the lover or be the one willing to be blamed if they're willing to receive money. So, so as soon as divorce became legal, 
this this uh, uh, industry developed of saying, okay, I will be the reason you got divorced. Harm is done to education and training of children. We see this obviously in in uh, if we did all the sociological studies in the last fifty years have shown how totally destructive divorce is to home life and and to the lives of children. Because what do we see in them? We see that they go to prison more often. And then when they get out of prison, the recidivism rate among those from divorced families is higher. We see that they don't graduate. We see they get uh, pregnant more often. We see that when they themselves get married, they get divorced. Every single sociological study over and over and over again shows the same problem, that which Leo the Thirteenth predicted in 1880. Occasion is afforded for the breaking up of homes. Obviously, that's that's what happens in almost every divorce. The seeds of dissension are sown among families. Think about how many kids you know, when they come home for Thanksgiving, they got to go visit four families instead of just one because the fam- they can't even get together. All the times, all the marriages that I've done where I have to sit people in separate places because the two people who made one of the kids that's about to get married and that I'm about to officiate at their wedding, the two parents who participated with God to bring that child into being can't even look at each other. The dignity of womanhood is lessened and brought low. We're going to talk more about that, so I'll pass over that. And women run the risk of being deserted after having ministered to the pleasures of men. So what basically uh, Leo is saying there is that divorce, while it is sold as a way to liberate women, actually has the effect of making their plot worse, right? And we see this even today when when women get, get divorced, even though a majority of the time, the person who files for the divorce is the woman, she ends up economically worse off. And the man, more often than not, becomes economically better off after the divorce. So the, the uh, uh, very uh, abdication of man's responsibilities, this is what, this is what divorce... This is what ensues after divorce, is this uh, disparity. But really, what divorce law, the new divorce laws that were passed in the 1800s, they allowed for the abdication of male responsibility. So uh, the second thing we're going to look at, and the predictions that all came true, are uh, from from uh, Pius XI. He wrote Casa Canubi. Uh, the date of this is December 31st, 1930, and you remember. Lambeth 1930. So this is a direct response to the Lambeth Conference 1930 saying that it is licit for married couples to use contraceptives. So 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 Pius XI writes this beautiful encyclical, and you can see in the part uh, that I've uh, quoted that uh, this, however, and if we look at paragraph 75, is not the true emancipation of woman, nor that rational and exalted liberty which belongs to the noble office of a Christian woman and wife. So he gives his predictions here. What will happen if woman fails to embrace her womanhood? One, it is the debasing of the womanly character and the dignity of motherhood and indeed of the whole family. So who can debate that there has not been a debasing of the womanly character? All you have to do to understand that is go shopping. I have a store uh, five minutes away. I can walk three blocks. I'm at a store. I just have to check out, and then I get to see horrific pictures that I have to shield my kids from seeing. And that isn't even a porn store. It's the giant supermarket. So the the debasing of the woman and then of the whole family. So if women are objectified everywhere, what is my what are my sons being taught simply by uh, the air they breathe and the things they see on advertisement after advertisement? And even in the way you think, well, obviously, the way people dress. And right now when we're summertime and uh, we have to put a uh, notice and many churches do this, that that we want to have a dress code, something. If not, the church doesn't have a dress code, but at least we don't want to draw attention to ourselves while we're at mass. So we have to put a little notice in the leaflet and say, please, you know, when you come to church, try to practice a little bit of modesty. Otherwise, people are going to be staring at you rather than uh, paying attention to the holy sacrifice of the mass that's happening in front of them. And as a result of which, 
The husband suffers the loss of his wife, the children of their mother, and the home and the whole family of an ever watchful guardian. Women in the West, and this is true, this has been true throughout the history of the church. Women are the guardians of virtue. If you think about the Roman canon in our, uh, uh, the mass that we say every Sunday, I mean, the one that should be offered if you're a Latin Catholic, you should hear the Roman canon uh, at least once a week. And you can hear the names of those saintly women who guarded their virtue rather than give in to the lust of man and were willing to be martyred than be defiled. So you have Agatha and Agnes, and we have that beautiful list. And this is uh, uh, sort of the ground, this is, this is the groundwork for uh, Christian women throughout. And, and then we have our own modern saint, uh, Maria Goretti, right? So who was, who was, who was uh, canonized at such a age. She was only 11 years old when she died. Uh, but her mother was able to go to her canonization, as well as the man that had, 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 had killed her. Uh, so, so we have this beautiful uh, reality uh, that women are the guardians of virtue. But if they uh, reject their motherhood, what happens to morality? What happens to morality in society if women reject their motherhood, uh, reject uh, the call that everyone has to be a mother? Whether she has biological progeny or not is irrelevant. Every woman is called to be a mother. If you reject your motherhood, your womanhood, what does it mean for society at large? And so he says this false liberty and unnaturally equality with the husband is the judgment of the woman herself. For if the woman descends from her truly regal throne to which she has been raised within the walls of the home by the means of the gospel, she will soon be reduced to the old state of slavery, if not in appearance, certainly in reality, and become, as among the pagans, a mere instrument of man. So the, what, what do we see happening now, uh, particularly with the growth of the, what is the largest industry uh, on the internet right now, and it's been for the last 25 years, porn. If woman rejects her motherhood, if she rejects her womanhood, she soon becomes an object for abuse, a person to be used rather uh, than valued. So then we'll finish with uh, the quotes from uh, Humana Vitae. And this is this beautiful passage, uh, 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 paragraph 17 from Humana Vitae, uh, that beautiful encyclical of Paul VI, I think it is, uh, to my mind, it is the most important thing written in the 20th century. This teeny little book, this teeny little document is the most important thing written in the 20th century because he not only sees the future and is able to predict the future, but he also says the church will never change her teaching, that the linchpin of a healthy society is people in the home, married couples who are willing to give themselves their all, give themselves completely to one another. And the church cannot, not only will I not change the teaching, he said, remember his counsel told him that he should. His, his own counsel that he appointed told him to change the teaching of the church. He said, not only will I not teach, I don't have the capacity to, to, change, to change it. Not only will I not change it, I don't have the capacity to change it. And so we see the predictions that he makes Let's consider, first of all, how wide and easy a road will thus be opened up towards conjugal infidelity and the general lowering of morality. So we go from the 1930s when Pope Pius XI addresses the problem of women rejecting their role as women. We get to the role, at that point, they, he still figured they wanted to have kids, and it was true. Uh, they, 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 didn't, they hadn't rejected entirely motherhood because the, the uh, fertility rate was still about 3.5. There were still people having loads of children. Uh, they, would, they, would, they would use contraception and they would limit the size of their families, but there were still a lot of people having lots of children. But by, the by 1968, the fertility rate has already begun to drop. And uh, Pope Paul VI sees that we've moved on from rejection of womanhood to rejection of motherhood to the idea that we aren't even going to have children. We aren't even going to be open to life. And he says, it's going to open us up to conjugal infidelity. What's the number one cause of divorce in this country? Adultery. Even though we have no-fault divorce, people still say why they got divorced. Number one cause, adultery. And the general lowering of morality. Who disputes that? I mean, this is uh, we're living in a mad time where, where uh, 
I mean, I'm a baseball fan. You saw what happened in the Nationals Park. Many of you are down there in, in uh, D.C. area. Uh, a shooting literally outside a ballpark. I mean, that's it's uh, unheard of. A general lowering of virality. Not much experience is needed in order to know human weakness and understand that men have need of encouragement to be faithful to the moral law. They must not be offered some easy means of eluding its observance. It is also to be feared that the man, growing used to the enjoyment of anti-conceptive practices, may finally lose respect for the woman, and no longer caring for her physical and psychological equilibrium, may come to the point of considering her as a mere instrument of selfish enjoyment, and no longer as his respected and beloved companion. And this, of course, is what we talked about with, with regard to Kasekinubi. And if she rejects her womanhood, she'll be used. If she rejects being a mother, she's even going to more be used. It's just a, it's just a magnification of the same problem. So that now uh, we, what's the problem? What's the number one problem? My, my uh, nephew's a, my nephew's the Coast Guard. He spent a year and a half dealing with intercepting human trafficking. What do you think our Coast Guard does? They intercept people who are trying to bring sex slaves into our country. They used to call, uh, they, there used to be other terms for this, that, uh, but today we call it human trafficking and it's ubiquitous. Let it be considered also that a dangerous weapon would be thus be placed in the hands of those public authorities who take no heed of moral exigencies, who could blame a government for applying to the solution of the problem of the community, those means acknowledged to be licit for married couples and the solution of a family problem. Who will stop rulers from favoring, from even imposing upon their people, if they were to consider it necessary, the method of contraception, which, is, which they judge to be most efficacious? How long did it take between the time that he wrote this and the Chinese government to impose the one-child policy? When he wrote this, Mao Zedong was still in power. And Mao Zedong would say, every patriotic Chinese woman has six children. He said that till the day he died in 1976. So Paul VI wasn't looking at China. He was simply saying, this is going to happen. And Deng Xiaoping instituted the one-child policy just 11 years after this encyclical was written, 1979. It only took 11 years for that prediction to, get, to, to come true. And finally, consequently, if the mission of generating life is not to be exposed to the arbitrary of men, one must necessarily recognize unsurmountable limits to the possibility of man's dominion over his own body and its functions, limits which no man, whether a private individual or one invested with authority, may literally surpass. And we've seen in the time since Paul VI wrote this, not only the horrible steroids problem that baseball was visited visited by baseball right uh, in 1998 and after, we also see the problem uh, with uh, plastic surgery. Plus, what's the number one way that people use contraception today? There's 10.5 million people on the pill. 10.5 million women on the pill, on hormonal contraceptives. More people than that have been sterilized. More fertile people that is, fecund people have been sterilized than are on the pill. And of course, we're now seeing with the transgender craze, the girls binding their breasts, boys uh, literally removing their testicles and penises. It's unbelievable how prescient our Holy Father was when he said, this is what will happen to you as a society, this is what is going to happen to your culture if you embrace this lie. If you demean marriage by saying that people who are married to one another can use one another, rather than pour themselves out completely for the benefit of church, for the benefit of each other, for the glory of God. So, uh, that concludes my remarks. I'm sorry it's so sad, uh, and, and that today's today's uh, talk is all the bad news. It's going to get much better uh, next week. And and uh, as as sad as uh, today's talk was, uh, next week's will be uh, will be uh, joyful. So I guess uh, now is when the time gets uh, uh, question and answer. Thank you, Father. And I uh, I know that this was necessary setup, as depressing as it may be for us to be here looking at the culture we live in in 2021, the way you just described. Uh, yeah, that's that's pretty rough, but it's necessary setup to get to the good stuff in the next couple of weeks. So looking forward to it. And it actually 
it uh, it's it just makes me think how easy it is to look at a problem, you know, and think that it only goes back just a few decades, and you really have to just as a matter as a rule add two hundred years to that. Start there, <laughs> and then you'll start to be able to explain what's going on. So fascinating and thorough uh, telling of the tale up to this point. Thank you for that. I see that we have some good questions coming in here, but why don't I give Annie, uh, why, don't you, why don't you pick the first one here? All right, let's start with a question from Lauren. And uh, there are a couple of questions that she has in here that, that we can parse out, Father. She says, contraception and abortion especially both implicitly reveal telling underlying cultural beliefs about children as objects that adults can use for their own benefit or to fulfill their own needs. Where does this belief come from? Has it increased over time? Do you predict that children can be the ones to heal this disorder? Well, I think that we want to trace back where, where, where is it that, we, where can we trace back to the devaluation of women uh, and, and uh, where we see the commodification of human life? And, and it goes back really to uh, the Renaissance. When, 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 did, when did prostitution explode uh, across Europe? Uh, and, and it happened really as we moved away from a feudal society where everybody worked together. Uh, there were, uh, the cities that existed were very small. And, and as we, as we uh, uh, grew out of the, as the cities grew and people came off the farms and so forth, what we see is a lot of disposable income. And when you have a lot of disposable income, it's very easy to value those who are able to make the money and undervalue the people who are tasked with taking care of the children. And so I think that, I think that if we understand uh, the emphasis has to be placed upon uh, the complementarity of men and women, that uh, yes, men uh, very often, uh, most often are the breadwinner and uh, women very often, most often are those who nurture uh, and educate the children and raise them up in the fear of the Lord. Uh, the, uh, if, we, if we have to, as, as Catholics, say these roles, while uh, different and distinct, are equally valuable, and one can't be without the other. Uh, and when we, when we uh, raise one above the other, particularly the, the role of the male who's making the money, it isn't hard, very hard, and it's almost inevitable that children will be commodified. And if they're commodified, you can get rid of them too, as Pope Francis says, a throwaway culture. But on one, I can throw it away. So the 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 key, actually, I, I don't think it's the the, the it's not going to come from the children. Uh, it's going to come from uh, men and women truly valuing each other and and putting an end to the stupid uh, war of the sexes. There's no sex, war of the sexes. It's just complementarity. And if we if we emphasize complementarity over and over, every time you hear people talk about war of the sexes, men can do this, men can, no no. They're, they're different. We all each have unique gifts that are just as important, and we all need them, and we all need to use them. Uh, so stop elevating one set of gifts over the other. That's 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 a fool's errand, and it will only issue in uh, more devastation. And yes, I see you have a question uh, on screen here. Go ahead and unmute yourself. Thank you. And my question is this: I think that historically, please correct me if I'm wrong the woman body has been taken as an object much more than the male body, than the man's body. But I think that right now there is a tendency also to objectify the male body. Yeah. What do you think the consequences of that is going to be? You can see it in images. You can see it on the media. You can see it uh, male dancers at bachelorette parties. I mean, you name it. Uh, what do you think the consequences of that is are going to be, and also of children. The the the, uh, the answer is uh, sexlessness is the reason. So so what we see here happening, if you look at if we look at the male bodies that are objectified, it's almost always almost always the ideal of the homosexual community. That is to say, uh, you don't often see a man dancing who has a hair on his chest. He's always almost no matter how old he is, he's been shaved. He 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 looks like an adolescent male, even if he isn't an adolescent male. But no man over the age of 20 doesn't have any chest hair. But every time you see a naked man, he has no, he has no chest hair. What does that indicate? It indicates a, uh, the origin of this objectification is the same 
place the objectification of women comes from. Horny men, lustful men. The objectification of man isn't because of women objectifying. They're, they're learning the lesson gradually. But Playgirl wasn't published by Hugh Hefner for girls. It was published for homosexual men. It was, an, it was a magazine made for homosexual men. It was not made for women. Women hadn't gotten to that point yet. The degradation of the culture hadn't gotten that point yet. Now we see women doing it. But what they're doing, again, just as they take their cue from men, I have to be like a man to be valued. I have to earn money like a man to be valued. Now they're saying I have to objectify others in order to be valued. I got to fit in. The way I'm going to fit in is by objectifying others. So that's where it comes from. There's, it's women. It's, again, an abdication of male responsibility. It's women, rather than saying, I'm going to be virtuous. I'm going to be the guardian of virtue. I, because these men are so, such bores, because these guys are such cads, I'm going to be much more virtuous. They, in fact, learn the wrong lesson and imitate the cads and imitate the bores. So uh, the, the, the way that we uh, solve that, of course, is by, again, going back to the idea that a man pours himself out for a woman, a woman pours herself out simultaneously to the man, and from that life proceeds. Take away life. Take away the, that essential. It's the, it's the way every single one of us came to be. Every single one of us came to be, and yet we can so easily forget it. But if we, if we go back to that, that this is the key to civilization, this is the key to maintaining morals, is that we have holy marriages, then uh, we'll uh, set aside this absurd uh, tendency towards sexlessness and the objectification of both women and men. Father, we've had a couple of people write in with um, the question of how is the annulment process different from the divorce crisis? Uh, the, the annulment, uh, uh, we, we got 50% of the loans in the world. So obviously, uh, 1916, by 1916, we outpaced all other nations in the world in terms of number of divorces. So we've had a real problem with stability of marriages for a long time in this country. And now, today, 50% of all annulment cases, we are 4% of the world's Catholics. We, in the United States, are 4% of the world's Catholics. We have 50% of annulments. So what does that indicate? Is it true that a marriage can be annulled? Yes. Is it also true that there must be a lot of people lying in order to get an annulment? Yes, it has to be. There can't be that many invalid marriages. It can't be that that many people on the day they were married did not intend, didn't come there freely, didn't intend to be faithful, didn't intend to be fruitful, didn't intend to be married till death of them part. I, I mean, they say there's a crisis of catechesis. Yes, yes. But could it be that, that we are so uh, depraved in this country? I think it's more likely there's a big, uh, there's an outbreak of lying. Uh, so they use the annulment process, uh, in my own opinion, I have no way to demonstrate this, uh, but, but my own opinion is that, that America is not unique in terms of uh, invalid marriages. Uh, we, we're not, that, that can't be true. It is rather, we're, we're more likely unique in how we know how to work the system and uh, know how to get what we want. And we've done that really good. We've done that very well in our 245-year uh, history. We know how to get what we want, and we do that well. It's one of the things that characterizes uh, Americans. And so I, I that would be my answer for that. Father, I think you touched on this a little bit, but uh, somebody writing in asks if you could uh, just further explain the role that men played, men have played in misusing their power as heads of household uh, like as this has progressed, because it seems like these days a lot is laid at the feet of women. Oh no! I, I, I hope that I hope that what I said at the beginning—that all these changes that were advocated in order to liberate women were actually the abdication of male responsibility. I hope that that has come through loud and clear. That what we see is—it's uh, so, sort of—it's it's ironic. Uh, so the man abuses the woman, and she says, "I need to get a divorce to get away from this abusive man." The man then says, "That's a great idea. Now I can use more women." So the very thing, the solution that's proposed to stop the woman from being abused, issues in her being even more abused. So we know how Ephesians 5 has been, and we'll talk about Ephesians 5. We're going to talk about that a lot uh, next week. But Ephesians 5, that 
about how a, a woman must obey her husband on all things, how that has been so horrifically misinterpreted and abused uh, down through the centuries, when in fact nobody can be required to obey an order that is not moral. This is why we did not accept when the Nazis said, it was just following orders at Nuremberg. We hanged them all. We hanged them all. Because I don't have to obey that which is not true. I cannot be obligated to do that. I can sooner in the West, in the Christian West, sooner be martyred than do that which is wrong. So uh, the, the woman has never been obligated to obey that which is wrong. But yet so many men said, you have to do what I say. It says it in the Bible. You don't have to do what he says if what he's saying is wrong. And so the, so the, the, the whole crisis, uh, while a lot of people, as I, as I say, want to point to Betty Friedan and the feminist mystique from 1964, and that's the real problem. It's all the feminist movement. No. The feminist movement would not have happened without the wholesale abdication of male responsibility that goes back centuries. And so that's the that's the uh, that, that's what I would like to emphasize. Certainly, uh, women play a role in this and everything that's fallen apart. But if men had exercised their role as spiritual fathers, this wouldn't have happened. Um, Father, this may sound like kind of a strange question to our American ears, but actually, I know from experience of a co-host of my radio show who went to a couple of African countries with with Catholic Relief Services and um, told me about how in their hotel room there were three pillows, which leads me to this question about um, from Charlotte. She says, can you please suggest resources to share with an African friend who wants to become Catholic, but doesn't understand why polygamy is not okay since it's been practiced by his family for generations? The the resources, it's actually interesting. Uh, Church has many resources in this regard because she's been converting people from polygamous societies ever since her inception. And in fact, uh, uh, what the, the church actually has in canon law, who is the real wife? When a man converts and he has four wives, I should say it's a Muslim, and he has four wives, the man converts, who's his wife? And uh, what the church says is the first one is, unless she rejects the faith in which the second one is, whoever will embrace the faith, but then only one is his wife, but he still, nevertheless, canon law requires that he must still care for those other three women. He is not allowed to abandon them. His conversion doesn't mean that he stops uh, 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 taking care of them materially, but really, this—the thing is, how do you how do you understand? You understand why polygamy is wrong when you understand why contraception is wrong. So the church first condemned contraception and abortion, and then condemned also polygamy. And, and we can see references to this throughout Scripture uh, of, of the condemnation of these things, but. Why is polygamy wrong? Well, because you can't possibly give 100% of yourself to two women. You can't possibly give 100% of yourself to three women. or four. It's, it's, the whole idea is absurd. You can only give 100% of yourself to one woman. And she can give 100% of herself to you. Or that, is, that is to her spouse, to her husband, to her beloved. But once you enter another person in, you know, you're no longer faithful. The idea that you would be uh, exclusive is gone out the window. But what you've done is you've divided the affections. The affections have been divided. So I can give 50% to this one. Or maybe I'll give 45 and 55, or maybe 40 and 60. Maybe I'll just use her as a little bit. She'll just be my concubine. I'll give her 5%. I'll give you 95%. At any rate, once you have another woman in there, the 100% is gone. Just like when I give myself to my spouse, I must give everything, including my fertility, to her. Otherwise, I'm telling a lie. And to have a second woman is to tell a lie. Father, we, uh, we're running out of time here, so we're going to end with this. Uh, this person writes, if all of what you said today is true, uh, how can a single person or where should a single person find a spouse? Oh, my gosh. I mean, that's one of the things my girls, you know, I have six daughters and uh, a number of them have already been to say to me, Daddy, how am I going to find a husband? And uh, uh, in church, <laughs> the uh and not and I and I what I mean by that is is um, there are communities all over the country of people who are embracing the reality of what the church has taught since her inception, 
about human sexuality, uh, about marriage, about its indissolubility, the truth about uh, contraception. Uh, there's so many communities across the country. And if you aren't finding uh, the, 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 uh, what you need where you are, in America, we're, we're, you're, you're, uh, normally your you're, uh, domicile determines what parish you belong to. But in America, we actually allow registration in churches where we aren't domiciled. So if there isn't a community at your particular parish where there's a lot of people embracing the truth that I've articulated today, stop going there. Because, you know, my brother, he went to a, I'm not going to tell you where it was. My brother has seven children. He walked into a church with all of his kids. They were the only children at the church. And the usher greeted him as he walked into the church with his seven children and his wife. The usher greeted him and said, are you the bus driver? He was said, that said it to his face as he went to go into mass. You can bet at that parish, the culture of life, ethos, isn't very strong. So that's the type of place you're not going to find a husband. You find a guy that wants to use you and still call himself Catholic. But you're not going to find a guy that's going to pour himself out for you in a place that has ushers greeting families that way. And that, that's one example, but it happens all over the country on a weekly basis. Find a community, and if you have to move, if you have to move to find a community like that, move. And the Lord has someone for you. The Lord has, see, there's always going to be faithful people. There's always going to be faithful communities because Jesus says, I will be with you to the close of the age. So you'll find a place. You'll find a place where that exists. And in that place, there will be someone uh, whom the Lord intends for you. Amen. Thank you, Father. We're going to end there, and uh, we look forward to seeing everybody back with us next week and the following week for the other two sessions uh, of this wonderful series. Father Bergman, would you uh, be so kind as to close our lecture tonight in prayer? Yes. The peace of God was passed upon us, and keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God, and of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. The blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be upon you and remain with you always. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.